This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This is episode 255 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and we're sitting out on the patio of Ecliptic Brewing. And uh, joining me today is John Harris, founder of Ecliptic. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, thanks, Jamie. It's good to be here. It was fun. You were hanging out with us uh, earlier this week for a brewery accelerator here in Portland. And uh, before I get out of town later on today, I wanted to pop by. So uh, we're sitting out on the patio and you can hear some G&D chillers, uh, you know, cranking <laughs> away, keeping some beer cold in the background there. That's right. Those are G&D chillers. And uh, they're going to get a workout here uh, starting uh, tomorrow for the next six days or something. Oh, you got some warm weather coming in, huh? Oh, no. It's warm. Like 95 like, like tomorrow. Yeah, heat dome stuff. So we'll be at 100 for a couple of days, it looks like. And. Yeah, the chillers are definitely going to be working, working their butts off. Sure. <laughs> and they're hopefully not going to go down. <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully not. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, Ecliptic's approach to brewing. Uh, you've got a diverse kind of you know pub-focused piece here, but also a packaging side of the brewery distribution and uh, uh, kind of make a broad range of styles with uh, you know, some thematic ties through. We're going to talk about all of those things. But first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer GD Chiller's new micro channel condensers. GD's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for info on patented Pro Carb Inline Carbonation Technology, Pro Fill Rotary Filling and Seaming Can Fillers, the Alchemator Inline Alcohol Separation System, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses and more. ProBrew, a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a Promoc brand, offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. John, we normally start the podcast off talking about uh, your background. So uh, what's that arc of brewing history look like for you? Where'd you start? And uh, you know, what was that moment of beer? And then uh, how'd your career progress through the through the uh, through the years, gotcha. Yeah, so um, Elkhorn has started and uh, when I was younger, and uh, a guy named John Rockwood uh, turned me on to Dab D A B Dortmunder Aktion Brewery out of Germany, and um, he's like, you know, we're not drinking that crap. You're gonna try this, and he kind of turned me on to this import beer, and it was like, wow, this this actually has some interesting flavor to it, other than the you know the local Blitz or OE. Sure. And uh, so that's my first touch of, you know, imported beer, I guess you'd say. So that kind of sparked my interest. And as I just went along trying to try and try more beers, and then the whole microbrew scene started in about 1984 here in Portland. And and um, so I'd be trying the Widmers and the Bridgeports and sure. the, the pyramids up in the Kalama, Washington. And uh, Burt Grant, of course, had his, you know, black as oil, death, imperial stout and... Um, Scottish Ale and uh, oh, that, that, that Burt Grant Scottish Ale. That was one of those 
pivotal early beers for me. Yeah, it's good stuff. And then uh, just so I just kind of you know kind of delved into the scene, bought my first Michael Jackson book. Um, never really homebrewed very much. I mean, I did homebrew me with my friend Richard, and you know we blew up some bottles and stuff, and you know had some good old fun times. And um, but I really kind of was drawn more just to the whole beer scene. And then um, and I could play a beer, beer geek, what we call beer geek, and. I had a, lived in a house with a couple of women friends, and one of my housemates, Lori, came over one day and said, Here, here's your job. Go get it. And it's a simple black letters just said, Brewer wanted Hillsdale Brew Pub, you know, for the McMinimans. And I said, Lori, I mean, come on. I, 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 I'm not a professional brewer or anything. I know a bit about beer, but she goes, just go get the job, okay, would you? <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll go get the job. And so I went on down, and, and a few days earlier, I had met, through my friend Lori, this guy named Conrad Santos, and... And uh, just met him and casually, you know, he's a super nice guy. We just hung out and, and uh, one evening. And then so I go in for my interview at, at the Hillsdale Brew Pub uh, for the Minimans. And this is 1986. And um, I, I can say, I'm here for an interview. I go on back, look for Conrad. So I went back and say, I'm looking for Conrad. I'm here for an interview. And he said, well, just a minute. He was digging hops out of a, out of a bale of hops in the cooler. And, and he kind of looks back like that and looks back at me again. He goes, you, you? You, you want to be a brewer? Because <laughs> so you just met me, right? And so uh, I ended up uh, interviewing, and then he said, call me in a week. And I said, okay, I'll call you in a week. And I called him in exactly a week, and I said, Conrad, it's John Harris. Uh, do I get the job? He's like, huh, oh, um, um, well, I can totally tell he has not really even made his mind up yet. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, you got the job. You got the job. I'll see you on Monday. And I'm like, well, Conrad, I have a job. I got to give notice, you know, and he's, he's like, oh, OK. And he said, OK, well, this will be the day. Um, only thing I bring is some rubber boots. Bring rubber boots. I said, OK. So I um, rolled in that day, you know, 22 years old, you know, like, woohoo, I'm going to be a brewer, you know, and uh, we ended up um, Having the day, it went along well. Like he had me read the hydrometer. I knew how to do that. So that was the first big test that I could. And I read it to the same, you know, specific gravity he got. So he was happy with that. And then it came, uh, all right, man, um, get those rubber boots and clean out the kettle. <laughs> At that moment, I remembered that I didn't get the rubber boots I was asked to get. <laughs> and I was like, this might be over before it starts. You know? <laughs> and so I... Um, said oh wait i have those hiking boots in the car and i'll put those on but but one of the soles the front of the shoe it's, it's separated so it was like you know the, the sole was separated from the leather with these hiking boots oh it'll be fine it'll be fine getting the kettle of course the hot work starts going into my foot i start oh. jumping up and down dancing wow ow, ow, ow. and he's like what 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 and this guy he's he, kind of a great guy i'm still friends with him but he's just kind of a like very intense kind of spastic dude he's like what 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 what, what's, what's going on? What's going on? My foot, my foot, I'm burning, my foot's burning. He's like, what? Get, get out of there. And I hopped out of the kettle and he realizes I didn't have rubber boots. I had hiking boots on. He's like, okay, rubber boots tomorrow, right? Got it. <laughs> so I get out of work and I immediately yeah. drive to you know, an old chain called G.I. Joe's and I had some rubber boots for my second day. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So that's how I kind of got into it. Just kind of Right place, right time. Learning on the job so, at yeah, McMenamin's back yeah. in the day. You know, and then, you know, the interesting thing about McMenamin's was that um, it was basically a glorified homebrew setup. It was, yeah, we were making beer with malt extract. We were taking crystal malts. Remember what crystal malt was, Jamie? <laughs> I, I, I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it's not really around much anymore. Yeah. Everything's so pale now. But um, 
But we, we put specialty grains. Like we make Terminator Stout, for instance. And we've got our Black Malt, our Chocolate Malt, our Crystal Malts, and maybe some Munich Malt. And we put it in these you know, big mesh bags, and we make a tea with it in, in the kettle. And then we add the extract, and then away we go, and then ferment it in three-barrel three open fermenters in a non-refrigerated <laughs> room with, with air conditioning. Amazing. <laughs> and well, that's what Sierra Nevada did, right? Hey. <laughs> so that, that's good enough for the brothers. And so, so yeah, so I learned a lot. You know, I mean, I, I kind of look back and I kind of go, I probably learned more. Well, what, was the, what was yeast like back in the day? I mean, I mean, now, of course, you could do that with something like quite yeast. Oh, no, no, no. It'd be perfectly no. fine. But. <laughs> I mean, Y-Yeast Labs has, was just getting started. Yeah. Um, and that was the first yeast lab for brewers in America. Sure. And, um, oh, no, it was like, okay, you know, get a 10 out of, the, out of the till and go over to this corner store and buy a six-pack of Sierra Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> and we then take the Sierra Nevada bottles and we'd – Pour out half, drink, pour half into a glass, swirl the rest. The bottom is all bottle conditioned. Yeah, and then yeah. we just dump the, the Sierra Nevada into our starter. Hey. <laughs> you know, so I mean, well, Chico yeast is, you know, the most prolific yeast strain sure, sure. in craft brewing. And that's one thing that's pretty cool about Sierra Nevada was the fact it just didn't, didn't say no. I mean, you couldn't get anchors yeast to save your life. But yeah. Sierra's was just being given away every day in their bottle. But anyhow, um, sorry, Ken. Um, <laughs> If you have to send it. I don't know. Things have kind of worked out okay for them. I think I, I'm, so. I'm sure they're not too worried about all that. Like, right. Yeah. You know. uh, sure. Well, There's a standard, it's, right? It's interesting that a brewer said to me a while back, and I haven't really thought about this, but he said, you know, you know kind of like the idea of how is, you know, Sierra Nevada's you know, retained very relevant in the industry. They're very innovative and their beers sure, are, sure. Are, they follow the trends just like all of us do. And, um, and I, one guy said, well, you know, they gave their yeast away. So, you know, our beer tastes like their beer. Just because of the, I mean, the commonality is yeast strain. I know it tastes exactly the same, but the point was just that they they help stay relevant because the yeast they use is the yeast so many other brewers use. And I never thought of it that way before, but it's like, wow, you're probably got a point there. So there's something amazing in this broader world of craft beer where give, giving it away, in fact, helps create a standard and also you know creates a deep respect amongst fellow brewers for what you do. I mean, I think that uh, you know, especially when it comes to something like Sierra Nevada. Or if you look at, you know, Double IPA and Pliny the Elder, or if you look at, you know, we see it more recently in brewers that have been giving away their information on hazy IPAs. Like, you know, it's an interesting one where that, uh, you know, while it's not open source per se, by sharing, um, you know, you create connections which, you know, build this long-term relevance for what you do. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking also that avenue, sure. so... So you come out of McMenamin's and where you're extract brewing or par partial mash brewing or uh, whatnot, uh, and then fermenting with bottle dregs from Sierra Nevada <laughs> back in the day. That's amazing. Um, where'd you go from there? Yeah, so I did about two years at McMenamin's, um, just shy. Ended up uh, starting at the Hillsdale uh, Roadhouse, and then me and another guy were hired because McMenamin's was opening um, – they had the Hillsdale Pub, which was the first brew pub in Oregon, and then they had the Cornelius Pass Roadhouse, and then they had the Lighthouse Pub in, in uh, Lincoln City. So two brewers were hired, and the idea was that Conrad would run one, I'd run one, and, and the other guy, his name was Greg, would run the other one. And actually, Greg Kepke was uh, the founder of Rogales, actually, in the day, back in the day when uh, he got the Nike money from Jack Joyce to open that. And eventually, Gregory transitioned out, and John Meyer became their brewer, but... Uh, but Greg Kempe was, was one of the other guys hired when I was. Yeah. Um, it was going to go to the lighthouse. But anyhow, 
So, um, so, uh, uh, there was one, actually there was another brewer too, and he got, he got let go or quit. So I got shuffled to the roadhouse where I was brewing in a kitchen. So it was like the kettle, the hood and, and the grill top. <laughs> so it was like, the kettle was just open going right into sure, the, sure. you know, and, and the fermentation room, you know, had an air conditioner, but there's no refrigeration on the, these fermenters. These was just set the AC and cross your fingers, you know. And um, so I did some time at the roadhouse. You know, I come in one day and I pitch the beer and come in the next day. It's, you know, you could tell the Croizen had risen and the Croizen had fallen and it had covered the outside of the tank. And uh, it was 82 degrees. So I'm like, well, that's not going to be what we wanted it to be. So I, I really think that I could have, if I had gotten this job like at Widmer or Bridgeport to two other breweries in Portland. And Portland Brewing opened up right before I started being a brewer. But if I had gotten a job with those breweries, I don't think I would have learned as much as fast as I did. But how not, 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 not how not to make beer, but how, what's really important in a brewery. Yeah. And so. Um, what you can do and what you can't. Yeah, you know, for us, like, the, you know, the extract thing was always inconsistent. So we we're getting 80, 82 bricks and we're getting 78 bricks. And one might think that's not that big a difference. But in the wintertime, when you're trying to get extract out of a 55-gallon drum, and the kitchen's at 40 degrees because it's not heated overnight. I mean, one day I drove from the roadhouse to Hillsdale, and they started pouring me buckets of, of you know, extract. And then by the time I got back to the brewery, I had two because the cook was watching it. And I got the other five I needed from Hillsdale, and I drove, you know, 10 miles to get them. You know what I mean? So, so eventually we, uh, Conrad and us, convinced uh, the brothers, McMinniman, to take Hillsdale to all grain. And at that point I'd been the most tenured brewer. So I said, Hey, I would like to go back to there and brew the all grain batches. And so that was in like 80s, 87, probably early 88. We did that. And then, um, so yeah, we were doing a, you know, all grain brewing there and the beer started improving just because we had more control over the, you know, the, you know, malts, pale malts are sold in sure, beer. Sure. So, you know. Anyhow, now, of so, course the entire ingredient picture for, for beer was also different back then hops that you had, uh, available to you, you know, malt, everything else. Like, I mean, there wasn't the industry geared around selling all of these things to craft brewers in the way that there is now. Oh uh, yeah. Not at all. I mean, I mean, you had a couple of hop companies that are still around like Haas and Steiner and, um, hop union and of course changed his name multiple times. But the point just being, a, I think that I remember how I still have the Haas hop book from then. And oh, yeah. it has like nine varieties in it, you know? <laughs> And none of them yeah. have any dank. None of them, have, yeah, other than yeah. Cascade, have any citrus. Uh, you know, the uh, no mosaic, no Simcoe, yeah. no Amarillo, no Azaka, no Nelson Savon. I mean, the New Zealand hops we were getting back then were coming in so oxidized they were almost unusable. But th- th- they were becoming available then, but right. but not like they are now with the with, you know the you know knowing that hops need to be cold. Maybe I don't. Know, well, they knew that all along. But the point just being that. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, the, yeah, the, the quiver, the brewer's quiver with hops was much smaller. In the sure, military. sure, and sure. Then, and then CFJ 90 came and that was like revolutionary. That was like the super cascade, which became Centennial. Yeah. And it's still a workhorse for a lot of breweries. Like we use a lot of Centennials here still just cause they have a classic citrus punch that, that they only have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, so, um, so another ad in the paper popped up. This was, uh, for a brewery in Bend, Oregon called the shoots. And, um, at the time, I had um, I'd left McMinimins, and I was kind of I had a, on the, I had a, a homebrew, actual homebrewing injury, which cut my foot open, and then I had to I couldn't work for two months. Um, my foot was in a cast, and make a long story short, um, I left McMinimins, and I had some time between there where I wasn't 
I wasn't really working, and um, but I was working on a project with a guy in Bend to possibly open a brew pub over there. And um, uh, but he, you know, he had great aspirations, but didn't have any of the backing he needed. And yeah. when push came to shove, and we were at a, a UC Davis had a weekend class beer and brewing, and the first day was the business side, the second day was the brewing side. And I said, Dwayne, you, you know, you need, we need to go with this. You need, you need to understand more of what's going on. And he said, cool, let's do it. So we went down there and I first met Dr. Lewis and he was, Dr. Lewis was gracious enough to say, well, bring your, bring your friend tomorrow. He can, he can do the brilliant thing for free. And so I was able to go the second day. And um, so I first met him before I did some brilliant school with him. Some you know, week, week intensives there later on. But um, anyhow, on that trip, I realized that this wasn't going to work out as a partnership. It wasn't going to work out because there was money in the room. We're in these rooms with people with money. Right. And I'm like, the money's right in this room. You know, and, but he wanted, I couldn't blame him. He didn't want to, he didn't want to go that route. So, um, that all fell apart. And I kept the whole time, those two months, I kept seeing this ad <laughs> in the Oregonian sure, says sure. a brewer wanted to shoot brewery Bend, Oregon <laughs> and a phone number. And uh, so after this ill-fated trip, you know, Dwayne went on his way back to Bend and I, uh, picked the phone up and <laughs> he left my apartment. Not a minute later, I had the phone up dialing the number. I said, my name's John Harris. I'm two years experience and I'm your brewer. I'm your brewer, <laughs> throwing it down. And uh, long story short, uh, Gary um, Gary Fish, you know, invited me over for an interview. At that point, he also had he had already brought he was in under construction. He was you know well at, into opening, you know, right, right. Just having he was having a hard time and finding this is a, the pub, right? The pub, yeah, the original yeah. pub. Yeah, he was having a hard time finding a brewer because he wanted a brewer with some experience. He just didn't want someone out of Davis who just sure. who never actually made beer before at a professional level, right? And um, anyhow. I know I'm rambling in my history here, but um, I'll, go, I'll pick it up. But um, no, 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 uh, this is fascinating. But um, so I, I can live in in this world for a long, long time. <laughs> okay, yeah. So this guy, uh, Frank Appleton, Frank Appleton, who had opened uh, Horseshoe Bay Brewery in, in uh, up in Canada. Yeah, opened up Spinnaker's Brew Pub. So those are the two original OG um, Canadian breweries. Uh, one in uh, Victoria, and one in uh, on uh, in Vancouver. But anyhow, um. Frank was already on site because um, he hired to basically live to move to Bend for two months to help get the brewery up and running and do the first batches in case we couldn't find a brewer. Yeah. So I went over interview with Gary and with Frank and um, I drove away and uh, I said, Gary, so I'll get back to you. I mean, it's a long drive down there to Bend. Yeah, it's, it's, you were committing to that. Yeah, it was an overnight, but there was an old family that had a, um, had moved to Bend. I lived across the street from my parents when I grew up, and they yeah. they let me stay in their motor home that night. So I had a free place to stay. So I just went down for the night. Sure. Actually, I may have. No, I may have. Well, I don't know what I did. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a couple of days later, I get I get hired, and um, and I, I don't. Th- this question came at me twice, and I like it's history. It's like, um, but there's one thing, John. Hey, Gary, what's that? And I, well, I go. I want to make this much money an hour, and then he said that's good. Blah, 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 blah. Um, well, I have this certain image I want to have behind the glass, um, you know, and, and in, front, in the front of the house at my restaurant, and that's, you know, hair above the collar. And I had a ponytail, you know, and I'm like, and I'm like, nope, not cutting it. <laughs> He's like, okay, I'll deal with it. When can he be down here? And I said, I just have to, I'll talk to his family, I know, and I might be able to crash in a motorhome for, so I ended up like crashing in a motorhome and, yeah. until I could get an apartment. And then uh, it was in bed for, you know, just shy of four years. Yeah. A little different place back then versus where it is now. Oh, yeah. No, it was a struggle. I mean, <laughs> yes, sir. What can I get you to drink? I'll have Coors. Uh, sir, we make our own beer here. I'll have Coors. Um, 
might you like to try our golden ale? <laughs> Cascade golden ale? You know, like, so it was a real struggle in that town. I mean, it was truly like, you know, yellow beer town. And, um, right. Sure. Sure. You know, There's a couple of bars in town that were serving some of the micro brews, you know, and people are afraid of the micro brews. It was really it just it, the whole history of, this, of how people were afraid to even try a beer that was dark right. or a beer that was red or the beer that didn't have that, you know, low body, low. Right. You know. Where are the where are these Deschutes years? Um, eighty eight to ninety two. Okay. Yes, I was there in the very beginning. Technically, sure. technically, I was the first brewer in the history of Bend, Oregon. Really? Yeah. If you don't count Frank, he was a consultant, but he didn't. He was a consultant, so yeah. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't, yeah. he didn't really live there. <laughs> no, so, there. There was never a brewery in Bend. There was a brewery in Prineville, in you know in the early late eighteen hundreds or whatever. 1900s, right, but right. There was no brewery in Bend until Deschutes. I want to keep following this history forward, but first, uh, supply chain challenges are here to stay for a while, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more of concentrate from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes from various carriers and can stay up to date on the status of your shipment. To get started on a freight quote for craft concentrates today, Head over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, looking for a good lager yeast? Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. So four years at Deschutes, what was after that? Yeah, so um, so I was uh, yeah, Deschutes for four years. You know, we'd uh, 1990, yeah, 90. We won uh, three medals at GAB, GABF that year. It was pretty a very nascent GABF, yeah, I mean, very I, early days I, I there. Believe, I believe it was Sierra Nevada Anchor Liberty, Mirror Pond Pale Ale, <laughs> top three in the Pale Ale yeah, category. Was, yeah, I was like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, but that was pretty cool. Um, but then just um, nice work. No, no, yeah, it, I think I got a trip to Florida out of that one. Hey, hey. <laughs> Gary's like, "Where do you want to go?" And I go, I'll go to Florida. It's, it's winter time, you know. But anyhow, um, so I was at Deschutes for four years. Um, along that time, maybe got to be pretty good friends with Jamie Emerson, who was the brewmaster at Full Sail, um, and my partner now wife Jane um, didn't really dig Ben very much, and it was kind of like an, an announced that she was gonna. She just really couldn't live there anymore, and she's, and she, you know, she's still my wife today, you know, like thirty-seven years later, or whatever it is, and or thirty-five. I can't remember anymore. Um, hope she doesn't hear this, <laughs> so I should know, right? <laughs> so your secret is so safe with kinda, all so it's thirty thousand like, people listening to this and, right now. And, and at that point, you know, also um, we were just starting to talk about, you know, we, we basically shoehorned every tank we could into Bond Street. We, you know, we'd put, you know, put in some double tanks in the cellar. We'd put in, the, you know. A, 36 barrel fermenter and a couple of 24 barrel fermenters. We were brewing 12 barrel batches at the time. Um, we had gotten the breweries on track to get hit 7,000 barrels out of this production site, but that was still new when there was only five breweries in Oregon at that sure, point. Sure. Six at that point still had it probably open, but they were a pub brewery in Eugene. But the point being is that the market was just wide open for growth. And um, we had started discussions of what the next brewery size would be. So these were the, these discussions were getting going and they were becoming really serious. And also, you know, the fact that my wife, you know, my, my current wife, my current, you know, is going to leave. <laughs> the and I'm only like, wife. And I'm had. like, and then Jamie, knowing that um, dissatisfaction with the town, said, hey, man, um, we're uh, looking about putting in a brewery in downtown Portland and we're looking for someone to run it. And I was like, oh, 
be more, you know? And, right, right. And they were partnering with McCormick and Schmicks, uh, where the, the McCormick and Schmicks big chain would own and run the restaurant. There'd be a glass wall. We'd be in the glass behind the glass wall brewing beer. We'd look like a brew pub, but we we're not really a brew pub, but they would feature our beer and kind of modeled after another one that was downtown that's gone now, uh, which was the B. Malak pub with the Heathman group. And then uh, Widmer Brewery had a brewery down there. So, um, so it, the model had already seemed to work. So um, I accepted that job at Full Sail. And, you know, a lot of the reasons, because like I said, I didn't want to get into the project and then walk out on Gary. It was better for me to take this opportunity to get me back into Portland and, um, you know, stay with, you know, my wife and, um, and so I ended up burning 20 years at full sale. <laughs> and that's, I could tell a lot. Of, I mean, that's just, yeah, I was there many years. So. 20 years of full sale. Well, yeah, technically with my vacation pay, yeah, it was 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it was like April, April 20th, April 8th or something like that, 10, 20 years later. So. Real quick, what was the career arc through that? So you start thinking you're going to you know, be at this Deschutes pub for a while. You know, where, where did you end up? And uh, what, what did the, where, when you left full sale, what was your title? I was a River Place brewmaster, so I ran the small brewery in Portland, doing mostly R&D and um, specialty batch stuff. And for many years, I had a brewmaster reserve series, which I basically, I was responsible for basically grain the glass. I mean, what do you want to make? Yeah. Formulate the recipe, make the beer with, of course, with, with another brewer, Phil, or whoever was helping me at that time. I mean, at one point, it was just me. I went through a lot of brewers, and a lot of these brewers have gone on to be at other breweries. So... Uh, but at a certain point, um, Full Sail decided that they didn't want to do the Brewers Masters Reserve Series anymore. They wanted to do the Brewers Chair Series. And um, so suddenly one day, I all of a sudden was basically told that your creativity, your access to creativity has basically been turned off now. And that, I, didn't, I didn't feel very comfortable with that, knowing that I was given basically at Full Sail. They gave me my, basically my own little brewery, and I sure. ran, for, ran for the company. And But it was really about... Now, when we first opened, we we're making golden ale and amber ale as much as we could. We're making seven day beer. We're ripping it through the brew house. We're, it's going, it's flying into kegs right. um, in Portland. And, you know, it was a keg only brewery at that point. Eventually, we would bring in mobile bottling to uh, do some reserve bottles and such. But um, so once that happened, and I was. They eventually like, launched the Session brand, make those little shorty bottles and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That came out of Hood River for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the Session really, that, well, the Session brand really helped, you know, full sale quite a lot. I mean, in 2000, I mean, the brewery was put up for sale by a couple of owners, and there was a um, VJ Malia who had uh, acquired the Mendocino Brewery, which made Red Hawk Ale down in California. Uh, was you know made an aggressive offer to buy the company, backed out of the deal um, at the last minute. Like we were thought we were going to be working for a new company at noon. They backed out of the deal at 11:50. Oof! Thinking the implode, company would implode, then they would come back in and, and swoop it up for you know 30 percent on that dollar or whatever. And what ended up happening, though, was that before that, um, Jamie and Irene, you know, the, the founders of the, op- the two that were operating the company, had pursued an ESOP and um, ended up, the ESOP ended up being approved by the board because the other sale fell through, so then we became employee-owned. So that was great, um, a great moment because everybody got shares then. So it actually got to be, you weren't managing the company, you weren't being able to walk up to Irene and tell her what to do or anything, you know, but but you were, you know. Sure, sure. an ESOP, so. But like I get, so I get back to that point where I was like, okay, I, if I'm going to open my own brewery, here I am. I can't remember how old I was, 40, 48 at that point, probably saying, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to, I'm going to do this. And so I, it started poking around and a couple of people said, you know, I, I wouldn't, I'd give you money. And I, in other words, I'd give you money. And 
I want to say I'd give you a lot of money. <laughs> and when I got the, a lot of money, I was like, maybe this could happen. And I, um, so I decided, you, you were know a known quantity at that, you know, then like people, people could bank on you then. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I made beer now for, you know, I don't know how many long, sure, years, sure. 20 some years at that point, 26 years. So yeah. So I mean, I made beers, people had my beers. Um, I felt, you know, like I just in the process of being, you know, on the management team at Full Sail, at one point to the, you know, do, actually being out selling beer for the company at one point, like selling the brewmaster beer in the trades, on the streets. I mean, I mean, the brewery was like, production, bring it, bring it down. We want you to manage Colorado and Alaska. All right. So now I'm doing sales management in Colorado, Alaska. But what I'm learning is I'm learning the whole beer business. You know? Right, so right. When I, when I decided to do this myself, I kind of knew what I was really getting into from the, from the financial stresses to the, you know, beer, beer recipe development to how to work with distributors to what, how, you know, how to work with chains. I mean, I, I kind of got a really good immersement in just the whole business side, oh, the whole side of the business. And right. Then, so with, uh, you know, my wife's blessing and our two daughters not knowing much to say, what that's daddy doing? <laughs> I'm like, quit my job, quit my job in April of 12, 2012. And then I thought, oh yeah, we'll be open before the end of the year. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, April of 2013, we signed a lease here, and now we're in the, actually in the final year of our lease here, um, which is hard to believe that we're in our you know tenth year. Wow! Of, yeah, you know, well, heading towards our ninth anniversary. But, but anyhow, so um, it took about a year and a half to get open. Um, it took about a year to find a building. It was really like just we just couldn't find the right location. And this used to be uh, fenced. You can see that some of the fence still there on the hillside, so people don't fall in loading up. This is all fenced. It was razor wire. It was foreboding. It was at that point kind of a gray building. Um, yeah. And it was like, and I'd driven by this building countless times and, and we're trying to find, trying to find a building, trying to find a building, trying to, you know, talk myself into how this building might work and how it might not work. And, and long story short, we found this building. My, my broker said, hey, have you seen this building? I'm like, I drove by that building thousands of times. So I would just get in my car and drive. Right. <laughs> and look right. for buildings. So, so, yeah. So in April, we signed a lease and we were open by October that year. Um, contracted a really good job and so we're um yeah so we started ecliptic you know it took a while but um i got my last the last piece of money i got like the day i signed the lease <laughs> someone was just wanted to make sure that was real and then they handed sure. a check over and um yeah here we are so cool cool let's talk about i rambled your, quite a bit there i'm sorry <laughs> you know i think you've earned that and so <laughs> but no i think you know it, it's actually uh i think it's really interesting to you know to talk about those stories about what craft beer looked like because it's easy to look at it from its current context and get wrapped up in you know all of the current dramas of whatever today is you know but it's also fantastic to you know look back and just see where things have come from the 80s through today and and just you know chart that and and you know pat everyone on the back who has led this through that kind of growth and that kind of uh, development because um, the quality of beer that American brewers and American craft brewers are making today is utterly fantastic. Uh, and it's night and day 
from making extract batches with no temperature control. Uh, very, you know, very difficult. You know, with oven top fermenters in the, at the old, you know, original McMenamin's location. I, I, I forgot about that brand new sanitary dustpan. We used to scrape the yeast off the top <laughs> and throw it over into the other batch, you know, and, top you know, cropping. Right. So, so it's good to have that kind of perspective. Well, let's talk, you know, I want to talk about, you know, as you decide to launch Ecliptic, you know, of course you have to envision you know, create an idea of what this brewery is going to be, what the beers are that those that the brewery makes, and how those are going to actually connect to people to drink them. Before we do that, with 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From a half barrel to 30 barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com slash cbbpod to get started. Also arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to Arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's Arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So, John, you decide to uh, take on some investment and go launch your own thing, and now it's all you. It's sink or swim. You got to, you know, prove that this idea, this crazy idea that you've got for making your own brewery is going to work. Um, what does the next step in your creative process look like? And would you decide, uh, hey, these are the beers we're going to make, or we're going to start making at least? And uh, uh, you, you know, how do you start formulating that kind of brewing identity for Ecliptic? Well, I mean. I wanted to, um, one thing I, one thing I did at McMinimins that I don't know if people know, but they were the first brewery in America to use fruit, at least in the modern, in the modern wow. craft, in craft times of working with raspberries, blackberries, strawberries, rhubarb. So they're the ones we have to blame for all of this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Just at, kidding, at that of point, at that point, you know, Deschutes yeah. owner was not into fruit. Uh, like full sure. sale was not under fruit. So I knew I was going to brew with fruit right off the yeah. bat. It's like, I may be making some fruit beer, uh, a beer I made, um, Early on at the Roadhouse, we found a, a grapevine, some grape, wild grape. looked like a tree, but it was a grape huh. plant. And we picked all those out and we um, you know, washed them and then threw them in the kettle and made a kind of, you know, we don't know what kind of white grape, probably a Riesling. Or sure. Some, you know, so I, I knew that I wanted to brew with fruit. So I knew I was going to try to recreate that beer that first year and got some juice from a white Why did you know you were going to brew with fruit? Yeah, me. Because yeah. I, 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 I thought it was awesome. I thought that, you know, and then of course in that, that you know, twenty-four year span between McMenamins and opening my brewery, actually twenty-five with a year I didn't actually brew because I was trying to open a brewery. You know? yeah. But the um, th- those were some of the funnest beers, and of course at that. Yeah. Be- but after that, by the late nine, like eighties, you were starting to see all the Belgian imports that were having way more fun with fruit than you could even imagine. And right, and, right. And uh, so just when that all came back, you know, it was just like I'm going to be doing this for sure. Um, I already had my first beer plant. I already had my winemaker I was going to get the juice from. It was, you know, it was all, you know, I already had that lined up even though I didn't have a brewery yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, sure. And um, I had this idea. I don't know. It was way before its time, but it didn't work. It was uh, 
I really loved unfiltered pilsners. I loved, uh, as you talked to a lot of brewers, um, the best pilsners really, the right off the Zwickle at about four weeks, depends on the yeast strain, could yeah. be six weeks, just depends where the, where some strains throw a lot of sulfur and, uh, but it magically, the yeast cleans it up and before you know it, the beer is just awesome. And so I wanted to make a Zwickle pills or a Keller pills. I came up with the great idea to call it um, Hefe pills because Hefe means, because Hefe <laughs> means yeast. Yeah. He's Pilsner, right? Heffa Pils. I thought I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought no one had thought about this. But, at, you know, at that point, you know, the word Heffa had been co-opted to mean wheat beer so, so much then. Because even though it doesn't mean wheat, it means yeast, right? But I was convinced I could convince the public that, you know, so I opened up the brewery. There's, of course, no history of Hefeweizen right here in Portland, none, Oregon. None, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. this little brewery called Widmer. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I tried for about it. This was the first bottle of beer we did other than our winter seasonal. Um, and I brought it out. I tried. I mean, I had brewers come through and go, is this a wheat pilsner? And I'm like, half of means yeast. And I realized at a certain point I was doing an in-store tasting. In the early days, I'm out there sampling my beer. And, sure, sure. And I look over and look behind me and there's a big stack of hef. There ain't no mention of Weizen. Just hef. H-E-F-E. And I'm like, I give up. <laughs> I give up. This is not sure, going to sure. work. So... I had to, you know, so I, the beer was great. It was, it, you know, it had a nice hot brightness to it. You know, yeah. the yeast, yeast character, of course, you know, when it was first bottled, it was really prevalent. But over time, after about a month, you know, the yeast will settle out. So the beer really evolved into a different, you know, a different being, kind of like um, Orval. You know, you have an Orval at the, you know, right out, right, you know, right, right. brand new. It doesn't, there's no Brett in there, you know. But then over time, sure, eventually, sure. You, you know, so the Hafer Pills would kind of do its thing. And, and no one can, I didn't. I have that trademark of the other brewers out there. It's still mine. Anyhow. Um, one day it's going to come back. <laughs> one day the memory just of Hefeweizen in here is going to fade and you can pull yeah, it off. It just didn't work. But it was, I thought it was great. I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant, but I was wrong. Um, yeah. So, so Did you take the beer and then rebrand it? We eventually rebranded it as Spectra. Uh, but, it, but it was still a hobby pilsner. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, you get to a point in a brewery where you have to decide what you're going to make, you know, and yeah. we, we decided to start canning and we were going to can uh, Orbiter IPA, which was our classic West Coast, you know, light orange color, yeah. caramel, caramel's in there, you know, and and then we had made a, a specialty batch of beer for Starburst just for a couple of festivals. And as we got closer to having to decide what we were actually going to you know, put into the can, it became apparent that the market was heading away from orbiter style IPAs right. and the Starburst style IPAs were with Mosaic Simcoe and Zoc Amarillo were starting to take over the market. And so the decision was made to go Starburst. And so the process of, you know, as you're trying to grow your brewery, you know, cause we went, you know, 300 barrels and we had 1300 barrels and we did 3000 barrels and we did 7,000 barrels and we did 14,000 barrels and we did 24, you know, so we just had this after we started sure, canning in sure. 2014, we started canning and everything, not, not 14, 2018, we started canning. And things just kind of snowballed. And all of our capacity was now taken up making Starburst. And so the Pilsner that we sold sporadically in a five, you know, a 22-ounce bottle, then into a 500-mil bottle, it, some beers had to die in order, yeah. in order to um, have others live, I guess you would say. So you got to kind of pick your poison, you know. And Sure, sure. And for us, that was the Starburst train. And so we, we hopped on that. And um, we do a Pilsner again now. It's a, it's a German Pils also, but it's not as local. It's just a... Traditional, yeah. uh, called Pixis, and it's just came out about a year, not quite a year ago. Sure, and sure. But with our network wide as of this year, so 
Let's talk about the evolution of West Coast IPA. You know, of course, you know, being here in Portland, uh, you know, you are close to, you know, very close to the Willamette Valley, that hop growing region. You're also really close to Yakima, you know, a few hours away, you know, in that uh, northern direction or northeastern direction. Um, you have plenty of access to hops. And yet Portland, you know, seems to have its own vibe when it comes to, to West Coast IPA. Um, you know, also has its own kind of dank character and, uh, you know, there, you know, people here seem to, uh, like a certain kind of flavor in their IPA. Talk to me about, uh, you know, how you've watched IPA develop over the last, you know, now two and a half, three decades. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I believe Burt Grant was the first one to brew an IPA in Yakima at one point before anybody else had brewed that style. Um, one would argue that Anchor Liberty Ale is an IPA. Um, I would argue that based on its yeah. uh, alcohol content, but also with the fact that it um, it's hoppy as crap. <laughs> you know, sure, just, sure. Just tons of dry hop. Character. I think they've embraced that term now for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, one might argue those were, to my mind, the two first IPAs. But um, in 1994, the Craft Brewers Conference came to Portland, and Full Sail was asked to brew the Symposium Ale, uh, the conference beer. And we chose an IPA, and but we, we took a take on it, very English. Challenger, East Kent Golding, um, I believe there was some Target in there, something like, you know, real English hops. And, yeah. and that beer more eventually morphed into uh, a Full Sail IPA that uh, we Full Sail did put out. Oh, and it was before Bridgeport IPA came out, uh, but it was, a, it was a, more of a seasonal, especially product than a year-round product. And then... Um, and this was, like I said, we were going English style on this, but then, you know, Bridgeport then eventually came out with Bridgeport IPA, which kind of relit their fire, which featured more of the classic Chinook Cascade Centennial hops, you know, so the more citrusy forward, more fruity forward. And then, of course, now the new, the modern, I call the modern IPA, which is after the discovery of Amarillo hop, discovery of <laughs> Mosaic, the breeding programs and stuff that now gave us, you know, Central Mosaic, the, you know, finding Galaxy out of New Zealand, um, List can go on right. on the newer modern hops that people really enjoy to use. And so, but the West Coast was always, and then Full Sail eventually relaunched a new IPA with a, in the more West Coast style. Which, and we're talking about, you know, these hops, yeah, bitterness in these beers. These beers, you know, a lot of beers I did in the, in the Brewmaster Reserve Series at Full Sail, I had, uh, you know, Sunspot IPA, I had Son of Spot IPA, I had Spotless IPA, I had the Grandson of Spot IPA. And the last one was spotless, you know. You were brand <laughs> extending before brand <laughs> extending was cool. Look at that. Well, I had this astronomy, I, I, I astronomy and yeah. the ecliptic is a totally astronomy themed uh, naming of our products. But anyhow, um, so I had brewed a lot of IPAs, you know, at Full Sail. That, and then we brought out, our, you know, a core year round IPA. Um, and uh, I can't remember what year it was, but Full Sail. Eventually, eventually everybody had to start making an IPA because right. IPA became, became king and now still king or queen. Have a look at it. But, um. You know, it's really the game now, and so the, the the tropical Starburst kind of IPA, the you know like local beers like Breakside IPA, and so that really drive a lot of that citrus character with some Centennial and Cascade or whatever you might want to use, and then Amarillo Amarillo kind of brings that slight started taking this towards a little bit of dank, and then of course the tropical hops of Mosaic and Azaka, for instance, just you know those you know, so and, and now we just just even more hops. Now we have you know Cryo and Puff Dragon and. Wonder Burst or whatever you want to call it, whatever next name's coming out for hot products, right? The whole file thing now with the top scientists just in the last couple of years realizing that sure. that's where these flavors are being derived from. We got thial, thialized yeast now that are being modified to 
Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, sure. The hot brush is on it now, but but it's interesting how like <laughs> that about three or four breweries in Oregon were were working on actually bringing another a new beer out and naming it a West Coast IPA. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the new West Coast IPA. Right. And for us, we um, did extensive trials to come up with what we call LIGO, uh, West Coast IPA, which just came out earlier this year, you know, and, and we had found strata hops, um, and, and, but it was, it's, it's too interesting enough to, you, you can't drop that into Starburst or into our Quasar Pale, for instance, or something like that. That's going to, you know, that's like, it's going to change the flavor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's more berry. More and, berry, uh, yeah. Okay. Berry so uh, we we've been looking for a use a place for that hop for a long time. So, because um, Strata is also grown right here in in uh, Oregon. Yeah, yeah. It's grown. Uh, I think it's an indie hops, indie hops hop, and then but also Roy Farms. We get it from up in Yakima grows it. Um, but anyhow, um, so we went went to create this new beer in a, in a sixteen ounce format instead of a twelve ounce format because we knew that in that format we'd be able to we charge a bit more for those cases, and so we can make up this three and a half pound per barrel dry hop we put in the damn thing, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but we well, wanted- let's talk about, let's talk about like formulating that beer. You know, you know, so you've got, you had, uh, was Orbiter, was that your, uh, you know, old school, you know, traditional IPA. And then you have Starburst, which is a little more lean, a little more pale and, uh, you know, a little more contemporary. And now you try to launch LIGO, which, uh, you know, is a, now fully modern strata you know version what are some of the recipe considerations that went along with uh, some of those things gotcha yeah um or especially with ligo in particular what were, were the points of uh of differentiation um well we um we have a two barrel pilot brewery now uh, that we didn't have until about i guess two years ago now um uh, so it's really allowed us to really experiment with hops or processes and stuff and and uh it's, it's just been great because we don't have to commit to 28 kegs when we make right. something. It's like, okay, let's trial it. Try to cut the kettle to 12 instead of 15 in the old days. And now we're at a 30 barrel system, but you can still get 15 out of it. But anyway, long story, um, we just started with um, different, uh, we kind of with a base malt recipe we wanted to go with. Um, we knew we wanted it to have just a little bit more color than the Starburst, um, just a little bit of a deeper gold color. So we knew we were going to be using a little bit of caramel malts in there. Not why, a why a little bit of deeper gold color? Just to differentiate it, okay. You know, making it just a different, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you can just, you know, a lot of breweries I know have like a real base recipe for their IPA, and then it's just a different. The hops don't right. just change; they, they keep the same exact malt makeups. They really like what it's at. I sure. Mean, and, I, and having Phaser Hazy IPA and having Starburst IPA, and also having some seasonal IPAs, <laughs> we knew that we wanted to, this just to be a little different. And West Coast always had a little bit more color, so we didn't want it to be orange. Right, we, we just a, just a touch, you know, and then then we just started. We we, we kind of landed on Strata because we knew that we wanted to work with Strata. But then we we, had, we did, but then we tried many different other hop varieties. We did about I think eight test brews total trials to the two barrel system, and then having you know tastings by not just brewers tastings or man, brewery managers tasting, but salespeople tasting, public tasting. They right on tap in the bar, alpha gamma and one, alpha gamma two, alpha gamma three, <laughs> alpha gamma four. You know, and it um. Eventually, we landed on the combination of the of the Strata Mosaic Simcoe as the what we liked the best. We tried Chinook, we tried Centennials, we tried. I mean, we we played around. We we played around with a lot of different varieties. Yeah, but, but uh, that's what we kind of landed on for the, the, the three main hops of the beer, and um, and then we knew we wanted to have a, a punchy dry hop, and we knew that we brought the alcohol down to six and a half. Um, Starburst is a seven point eight beer, so mm. it's it's a hearty IPA. It's more, sure, it's sure. More, it hangs more with Pliny. 
in that alcohol content, you know, it's not double IPA as far as we're concerned. It's a it's an IPA. 7.8. <laughs> That's in the imperial category, John. <laughs> I, you, I, I disagree. No, <laughs> but my point is You that, are allowed to be wrong. Yeah, no. Um. We, we just wanted, so we, the spirit really wanted to, it wanted to land in a sure, certain sure. place. And, and, and the cool part was that we actually had the pilot brewery and the and the lab we have now, which you know has a gas chromatograph, you know spectrophotometer. I mean, we have a pretty far size PCR. I mean, our we got a pretty elaborate lab, so we were able yeah. to really we can so we can really dig in and analyze our beers a lot more. And, and having the pilot brewery to actually lead the this whole development, we never had that process before. We we always done pilot beers, but it would really you're kind of shooting for the win you know, right out of the gate. Right. And, and honestly, with all the I mean, I I haven't added up all the brewing experience here, but just which with me plus thirty, Phil, who's our head brewer, runs the pilot brewery. You know, he's plus twenty years. Um, got a couple of other guys, plus you know, twenty years. I mean, we got like hundreds of years of, sure, <laughs> of experience. Sure. Of so we're pretty comfortable having a pretty good idea what's going to happen with that yeast strain. With that, um, we used to yeast strains we really know, and not necessarily like we did a collaboration with a uh, uh, Georgetown recently and the summer IPA, and we used their house yeast, and uh, it. it we just made the beer hazy. It's like we did not go for a hazy. We just went for what we got. And but suddenly it's like this beer wanted to be hazy. Right. So it's just like that's what the yeast did. It had some oats in there. That's probably what caused it. Right. And a, and a pretty punchy dry hop in that one, too. So I think the combination of the, just, you know, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. And sometimes you find stuff just like, you know, like when a person said to Kurt Widmer and said, can I get a keg of your, your, your Weizen unfiltered? It was a Dublin pub, you know. No, 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 no. Okay, I'll give you one. Sold in two hours. You know what I mean? And before you knew it, Widmers were like this, going, well, this is pretty cool. So you never know what you're going to get when you're making beer. Sure, sure. So with, with uh, LIGO now, you're, you're making this, you're designing this new uh, West Coast IPA. You want to add a little bit of color to it. You know, what, do you, what do you build out of it for malt? Oh, it's pretty much just you know, pale malt with a touch of caramel. You know, yeah, that's, that's it. Just, 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 just a, t- a skosh, you know. And um, you know, keep you know most of our, you know, most of our mashing profiles. We're a totally single temperature infusion mashing mm. brewery. I mean, we, you, you, yeah, this is English style brewing as far as pedigree. There's no step mashing. So the malt's pretty simple, you know, in terms. You know, but one of the concerns that everybody is certainly brewing West Coast IPAs these days has is, uh, you know, packaging longevity, especially with anything outside of those palest Pilsner or, or two row malts. Uh, and you all find that you can uh, package those effectively, and that they'll hit your goals for for time on the shelf, you know, with uh, a little bit of a little bit of color in them. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, we're, like I said, we're not talking like I mean, I'll get you a sample later before you go. It's not that much color; it's just yeah. a, a d- deeper golden than a what you could have a normal one point eight pale malt. Sure, you know, sure. Lava bond. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, we, we knew what we knew. You know, we had an idea. Like most, you know, most modern IPAs are, you know, the, the finishing gravities of these are, you know, very very low. Yeah, you know, c- comparatively to the previous times when you would want to stop at like three or four play doh, these are all at two Play-Doh or under. Right, <laughs> really. right. So they're really um, very dried out. But what's interesting, though, is they don't, with the, that accelerated hopping in this more modern West Coast, well, just current IPA trends, is that, that these lower finishing gravities actually help bring the hop flavor out, you know. So not just, the malt's not getting in the way anymore. Sure, <laughs> you know I mean? sure, so. sure. 
you using any kind of, you know, you know, at the same time, like body feels good too, or, you know, are there any other techniques you guys are using to, you know, kind of build a, you know, a rounder mouthfeel and body in, in these, uh, you know, dry West coast IPAs. Yeah, we, we're doing mostly infusion mashing below 150. So we're getting, you know, producing a lot of those dextrins, oh, yeah. or less dextrins. I mean, and, um, more fermentable sugars. Um, I guess I think it's really gets down a lot of times is like your hop flavor and how you use the hop flavor to balance all the flavors in the beer. It's not just, you know, you're getting these essential oils or you're getting these different fruity compounds that really are, are kind of like not just providing bitterness in the beer. Like in the old days, you threw hops in to make it bitter. You know? Right, right. Now it's more like you throw hops in to, to get it affect a, a, a body, affect the mouthfeel, affect a, a flavor that's going to make you think it's maybe richer than it is. Things like that. Does that make sense? Sure, so, yeah, sure, so. sure. How do you go about uh, like evaluating hops for for flavor and then building combinations of hops in, in your West Coast IPAs? A lot like of times, for example, what, you know, like what was this draw of Strata, and uh, you know, how did you then start thinking about how you blend Strata with other hops? Well, Strata is a hop I think that's really unique. I think it's kind of like a, the original Cascade when Cascade was found, the original um, Centennial or CFJ ninety when when the you know Gamash Farms found that Renegade. Amarillo hop in the middle of the field and said, this looks different, tastes different, and smells different. And so there's certain watershed hops, I think, that hit the market. And I think Strata is one of those hops that kind of announced itself to the world. And um, like I said, it tends to throw more of a berry component, which is not the citrus component that you'd expect right. out, of, out of some hops. And so it just, it, the challenge was, to, you know, to kind of bring the complementary hops into the beer. So we get that bit of that berry with a bit of the citrus and a touch of dank in that beer. Um, um, that, that's what, what we're going for in that beer. So we just kind of played with the hops that, you know, might fall in those different categories and trial. You know, like I said, we did extensive trials on the beer that more than we ever did on any other beer. Sure. Sure. Now, you know, I imagine you had contracts on, you know, some of the other hops that are going in with this too, you know, but did it change, you know, knowing that they were going to need to blend in with uh, Strata and, and amplify this kind of berry character, did it change, you know, how you all selected some of those other hops? Oh, as far as like picking lots, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but starting with a hop that you wouldn't want to contract yet because you don't know what you, you need it yet. <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? So, so Strata was more about our long-term relationship with Roy Farms, and they were growing it, and it was, um, you know, they had it. So we just basically started with their, their version of it. Uh, and, um, you know, think about Roy is different than any other, you know, brokers. They go right to pellet. They don't, they don't bail anything. It gets pelletized right away, mm. so that you can still evaluate pellets, but you're not evaluating the hop the same as you would if it was um, in the holy form. So, you know, so basically, it's like yeah, they don't yeah, there's <laughs> everything right to the pellet, so it's, it's actually you know preserved immediately. So, um, so we didn't really have any lots to choose from. You could say of that sure. that beer, and, but also, also, I mean, I know that just my relationship with the Roy Farms, Andy at Roy, Andy Roy. I mean, Andy spent actually he came here. Um, Spent three months with us as an intern. That uh, he was, that Roy asked if they could have him come here, and he, they paid him. They, he just was a shift brewer early, early huh. on, and learned all about how to make beer. And so we, we got a pretty good relationship with those guys. And I know that Andy's not going <laughs> to. Andy's yeah. going to. He's going he's gonna to make sure he gets right. Get the right <laughs> <laughs> but that's. But it is. I mean. But yeah. just, I mean. Yeah. But like, I actually got a phone call yesterday about scheduling our selection for one broker in the afternoon. Is you know, it, it is real. If you can, you know. There are differences between the, sure, the sure. hops, and there's some that are better, and there's some growers that some brewers have longer term relationships with, and they get all those hops that they don't really yeah. ever make make light. You know what I mean? I mean, I still remember one time at a broker, and 
we at full sale. We selected we selected Centennial or something, and and the broker's like, "Would you like to see what Sierra Nevada selected?" <laughs> if anybody can recognize that voice, you know who I'm, I'm impersonating. Sierra Nevada really liked this lot, but they bought it all. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, dude. So he brings this lot of Centennial out. And this is like, yeah, this was a friggin' bomb batch of Centennial hops. It was, it, I mean, it wasn't hand two times better than the one we selected, but it was a better selection. And, uh, but they bought the whole damn lot because uh, they're much, much, much bigger. So, <laughs> so much brewery FOMO induced right there from the missing out on the magical lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I think, but the thing though is, and I think, you know, with the, with the arrival of the Hop Quality Group 10 years ago or so now, I mean, they, they just the brewers trying to get the growers to understand that yeah, this is a food product, you know, that this. You sure, know, sure. You, you, you want to clean those machines really good because you only can use them a month a year, six weeks a year, you know, and not that they weren't clean. I'm not saying that at all, but I think that the brewers, this group pushed growers to innovate more. They pushed growers to be, you know, better processing methods, kiln temperatures. Um, cooling, way the hops are cooled. I mean, all these things were driven by, and then, you know, direct brewer feedback. And so I think now the hop gr growers and brokers are really much more attuned to what brewers really right. want versus just what's, yeah, that may be better for you to hold, pull that vine two weeks early than we think it's, it's ready for, but you're going to have a much better hop for the brewers if you let sure, that sit sure. two more weeks. So it's that whole hop side of just the grower relations and, and breeding to programs and things like that, that yeah. are much different now. Let's flip around and talk a little bit about fruit beer. Obviously, you mentioned earlier on that this was going to be a big thing for Ecliptic and, uh, you know, it's something you've enjoyed making for large swaths of, of your career. Um, you know, as you envision a new fruit beer for Ecliptic, what's the creative process look like? Um, yeah, I mean, we made some different beers um, through the years. Uh, a lot of in-house beers with just different fruits, you know, between um, Well, we make two year-round sour beers, um, a tangerine sour and a peach sour. And... Um, we realized uh, at one point we were, we were getting this, pe you know, peach, peach puree and the, the variety of peaches that was being processed was really stellar. And then that the, the producer was unable to get that that particular lot of peaches. Sure. And they switched to another variety and it's like, you know, the peach flavor just dropped. Ooh. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like not, not negative. It just it was reality. And uh, hmm. Oh, yeah, we had to change varieties. We couldn't get that variety anymore. And. So we had to add an extra box to get, you know, to get the flavor up. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's been really interesting to work with different fruits, especially on a year-round basis as, you know, they, are we good? Are we good? Are we good? Yeah, we're good. Oh, we're out. You know, like, like there's an entire guava shortage right now. Uh. And uh, a beer we're making right now is a seasonal called Flamingo Planet Guava Blonde Ale, which is just a straight-ahead, you know, blonde ale with guava. You know, it's, you know, the guavas, we want the guava to be very flavorful and, you um, and a certain broker, you know, couldn't get any. Another broker had some. So producers, we got their fruit, and their fruits were good and just great. And just, but we'd have to pay the shipping now, which is astronomical from, you know, from Midwest. And sure. So um, lots of times it gets around. Uh, I mean, those are real considerations now, unfortunately, um, with how much is that landed cost going to be for you? Because if you're bringing something like, you know, whiskey barrels out of Kentucky are going to charge cost a lot more. To get to Oregon now than they did, and that's right. Gonna, that's money, you know. So it's gonna be fruit or grain or, you know, the supply chain stuff's real. And uh, right now, it's like, you got any guava? You got any guava? You got, you know, there's another brewery in town making a guava beer right now too, and they're having a hard time finding it also. So, um, 
So yeah, it's just, I mean, obviously any fruit beer you want to develop is, if you're going to tell them it's a fruit in there, you better taste it, you know? Yeah. And that's one thing that we've, you came to find, especially making sour beer, and these are all, you know, lactic hot side sours. I mean, we actually have a souring tank that's designed to sour beer like you would in your kettle. Um, is that, you know, as you... And so you do that for each individual batch and, you know, pop it out into a tank and then go through a lactic souring process and then, you know, pull it back and kill it or... Uh yeah, so we'll, we use a lactobacillus strain that, that, that hops kill, number one. Hops will kill it. So we'll make the wort, won't hop it, boil it, make sure the wort's sterile, cool it into the sour tank, lacto starter, day and a half later, whenever we get our, our sure. TA and our pH we want, back to the kettle, uh, through heat exchange on the way back to the kettle, heat it up, and reverse process. Right, so right. So you don't wait for this you know, 70, 80 degree liquid to get to a boil. Yeah. Um, and then it's, um, it depends on what kind of beer we're making, like a blackberry sour. We normally would fruit that actually in the kettle and it worked pretty good. But what we found with peach and others, we need fruit in the cellar mm. to get the flavor we want. So it just depends what we're doing. But we found, especially with the sour, sour fruit beers, is that there's a nuance that happens. And this, when we developed Karina, 28 keg batches at a time, you know, it's like too much fruit, not enough acidity. Too much acidity, not enough fruit. And so there's a real balance to get the acidity right with the fruit right because too much of the fruit will cut the acidity and too much acidity will cut the fruit. So it's, it was really it's a very delicate beer to make. It's very it's a tough beer to make. Sure, on sure. A, on an everyday basis. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, what's uh, what's next for Ecliptic? What's what's big on the horizon? Uh, you know what uh, you know what's what's next for you all? And then of course, what does success look like? Have you achieved it? Uh, are you still pushing for it? Um, you know, you've been around for quite a while here in this world of brewing. What do you hope to still achieve uh, with, uh, with the time you've, you know, you've got here now with Ecliptic? Well, one thing I, I definitely have learned from the Hafe Pills on uh, from the fiasco, we won't talk about the sparkling ale fiasco. We won't talk about that one. That well, Coopers can make a sparkling ale. I can make a better sparkling ale. And everyone's a sparkling ale. What's a sparkling ale? Oh, forget it. You know, but, you know. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I mean, the last three years have been just, it been tough as hell, you know, the sure. 20, 2020, we had just um, remodeled the restaurant in February. We had, we were open for two days before the governor shut us, two weeks before the governor shut us down. You know, the, um, that was March and that was Portland dining month and Portland dining month is this really big month in Portland where it's like a July numbers in the, in March because people come out for these specials and right. for restaurants and we were two weeks into that, the, you know, the cash was coming in. It was like, all right, this is going to, this month is going to just dump onto the loans we took. You know, it just, you know, the whole thing just came crashing down. And our pub set empty for, you know, many months and having just been remodeled and, you know, and, sure, sure. you know, and just the tremendous we had put in for 2020. Actually, we, you know, got utilized big time. We were, we were already a canning brewery anyway, about 80% canning. So when they were, when the pandemic flipped, we went to 100% canning overnight and we were just, and cans were flying out the door left and right. A few a couple of breweries in Oregon, unfortunately, you know, are um, you know, were draft only breweries, and they watched. Their, I mean, they, they watched their entire market shrivel up in seconds, and you know, so I called all those guys, said, "How you doing?" And they just flipped the canning as fast as they could, and um, but anyhow, um, and then you know, twenty one was tough. So I'm, I'm sure the brewers listening to this right now. I mean, you know, all that pandemic buying did not happen again in twenty twenty one, right? And so what we thought was like this great year going to be even greater year. All yeah. this, another, we weren't even talking about that. Distributors weren't, we just, 
he assumed it'd all be right back. And then, of course, the 21 was down for some brewers, was down a little bit for us, was not a whole lot, but down a little bit. And then, but this year it's been really bizarre. 21's been, or 22's been really tough for a lot of craft brewers. The uh, on premise um, sales are just not public, cancel it. Off premise sales are just, something's, ha- something's clicked. And, right. And you can look across the board and I rise for Portland and you'll see that everybody's down, you know, pretty much. And it's it's just, and we don't know exactly why. Is it like, is it not people in the, in our, but our draft sales are up, right? So we're up like 20 some percent in draft sales, which is great. Our sales people's killing it, but it's, right. it's just, it's just interesting time. I mean, for me, it's just. The draft yeah. has come back. People are drinking on premise, but it's not replacing what they're not now buying in cans either. Right, and for, so across the board for everybody. Sure. And so, it, and I, it's still not back up to that pre pandemic level of people going to tap rooms and, and drinking them. Oh no! I mean, nineteen. We were still struggling to, to meet demand, and we had made the right moves in the fall of twenty or fall of nineteen to be ready for twenty. And right, and, I, and it panned out. But the point just is, I think right now it's just, it's just a tough time for craft beer. I think a little bit. I mean, people are still coming into the restaurant and stuff, but people are just still leery. I think sure, through sure. this whole COVID thing, and um, you know, our goal is. I mean, we have got our beer plan together for next year, and. Got some fun stuff. You know, we're going to keep doing the, this Moon Room series, lager styles. We're just trying to show the fact that we can, you know, we're primarily an ale brewery, but we can make really good lagers too. And yeah, and um, so that's been pretty pretty good. But yeah, you know, but just right now, it's just it's just especially in the restaurant side, it's just tough. It's hard to find staff. It's hard to keep staff. I mean, we had a second location going that we had to shutter temporarily because we couldn't staff this restaurant, right, and we still right. struggle to staff this restaurant every week. We got people picking up shifts off poached shifts. It's like it's like dishwasher for hire and they come in and help you out for one night one shift then they're gone and so it's just it's just we had to shutter one of our you know our second tap room just because we couldn't it was like we were closing one then closing the other one it was like no we got to keep um, this is our right, big this right. is our big location so we had to keep this open so yeah so just not to paint a desperate picture but it's not desperate but just it's just a tough right now and but we're still you know goals to still make creative innovative beers see what you know I, I learned you know the biggest thing is you got to make the beers people want to drink that's one thing i learned along you know around the i learned that really in the first couple of years was making beer that some of my crazy styles that didn't you know like i wanted to make this double pilsner because i had made one before and it's like well it's a pilsner though it's not a bach beer you know because it still tastes like a pilsner but it just happens to be seven percent alcohol right so great idea i hired my first sales manager probably my current sales manager and, and she says what's with this double pilsner thing I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was all excited about it. You know, it's going to be, use these hops and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, what, you want a blackberry sour? She's like, now we're talking, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So we made ultraviolet blackberry sour. And it was our first, uh, you know, lactic sour beer we ever did. And right. sold great. You know, it's just, so I really learned, and I have learned through this last, you know, we'll be nine in October, is that, you know, you got to make the beers people want to drink. You got to keep, you're right. You can't just sit there and say, I'm going to make an English mild. I mean, you can, but you're just not going to be making that much beer. And if that's your, mar- that's your business plan, your business strategy will help all, all the best to you. But there's definitely, you know, consumers are driving what people what want to drink. And you just got to keep your eye on the, on the ball, I say, you know. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a great place to bring this to a close. G&D's microchannel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. And of course, they've been operating behind us uh, as we've been talking all through this. ProBrew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery to the next level. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Fermentus provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style 
and arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality uh, go to beerandbrewing.com click on that subscribe button support what we do make it possible for us to bring you these conversations every week john harris ecliptic brewing uh, if people want to learn more about ecliptic uh, where do they find you all right our website eclipticbrewing.com or you can follow us on instagram twitter facebook all the usual spots yes yeah. we're always telling people what we got coming and we always got Something new coming out. Not every week, Christmas, but we dumped four new beers in the last week here. So we got a lot of Hey, hey, on. hey. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Cheers, man. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.